1: Today is Friday, September the 22nd, 2023, and since it is Friday, 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 it is time for an expert council Q&A show of the week, and I've got a good lineup of experts, some folks you haven't heard from in a while. If you're one of the experts that sent me content in the last two weeks, and you don't hear yourself on today's show, you did nothing wrong. I shook the piker tree, a lot of stuff came out of it. And I'm kind of doing these in the order received with making some adjustments based on people that were on last week and uh, not having, like, three segments from one expert. So, uh, for instance, who did we get left off this week? Patrick, uh, Doc Bones, Sean Mills, Ken Berry. All of your content is excellent. It's just going to ride it out till next week. And uh, so that's why that's going to just... Because sometimes when I do these shows and somebody sent me a piece and then it doesn't end up on, they're like, was there something wrong with it? Did you get it? Nah, I got it. It's just, we got a bunch of it finally. Though I do need more content because that's four. And that's pretty much all the experts I have for next week right now. So if you are an expert and you're listening and you're all like, yeah, see, I'm going to be on today. I need more content. On that note, I need more questions to shake the piker tree harder to get you guys more content. And so, uh, like, I'll give you an example. Ben Falk's going to be on today. Ben is a guy we don't hear from that often, but I don't get enough questions for him, because I got this question, and Ben literally sent it back in 20 minutes from the time I hit send till it was back in my box, and it's like an 8-minute answer. So Ben will get your answers to you quick. So questions for permaculture, special, specializing in cold, humid climates, being northeastern United States, Ben Falk, and lots of permaculture stuff you can do, but that's just like his wheelhouse. Ben Falk, get them to me. Get them to me for all of them, and we will get you answers. What do we have today? Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. Senator Paul, uh, not Dr. Ron Paul, Senator Paul, Rand Paul, vows to block more funding for Ukraine. Good. Dr. Paul and Dan Adams will talk about that. And Chris Rossini is going to ask a question. Do COVID authorians think Americans have the memory of a goldfish? I have some comments on that one. I don't know if Chris realizes he stepped into something here that would be a really interesting thing to come up with, though I don't know that I have the uh, horsepower to develop it. On the Issue du Jour, or the Issue de la Semaine, which would be the Issue of the Week, right? the Bullshit Soup of the Week, what is the goldfish memory factor of the American people? I think most of the time the goldfish memory factor of the American people is really high. So I don't think it's whether they have the, Amer- the, the memory of a goldfish or not. It's like, are they having the goldfish memory level about the thing? I think the goldfish memory for COVID is pretty low. I think there's a good 15-20% of people out there that literally... So that would be like the goldfish memory factor for COVID is about 15-20%. But I think most of the things that they sell to the American people, is more like completely the other way around. Like 80% have the goldfish memory factor. Cool stuff from Chris Wassini. We'll expand on that when we get to it. And Nicole Sauce. we'll talk about how to get public speaking gigs... With people you don't know. Uh, Matthew Sersley, who's spoken here at TSP uh, workshops in the past, uh, he said, you know, I've gotten some speaking gigs. It's been really great for my business, but like all the people that I've gotten gigs with, I kind of know them. How do I get some with people that I don't know? How do I broaden uh, my reach with public speaking? Good question. Nicole knows a lot about that. Like I said, Ben Falk turned around this answer really quick. It was basically, and he had to like ferret through this, because this is a really long convoluted question. Realize how to best move wood heat around your home, stoves, fireplaces, things like that. Uh, And and he actually wrote about this in his book, and I have a link to his book with his segment. Jeff Lawton came to us today from uh, Jordan. Uh, Jeff is a great guy to send questions in for, probably the premier permaculturist in the world. Always gets answers back to me relatively quick, no matter where he's at. Sometimes there's some background noise or something, because he's like, literally doing something like teaching an earthworks course or something. He's going to talk to you today about composting with chickens and concerns about pass-through toxins in large animal manure. He'll tell you why he doesn't really worry about it. I'm going to reinforce that at another level and you'll all think Jeff and I are crazy. We're not. We've done it. It works. We know. Relax. Relax. Really. It's all about the carbon cycle. Professor C.J. Kilmer will talk about something I hear from you guys about all the time, including in comments during live streams. The fourth turning. What are his thoughts on that? Tim, the tool man cook, will talk about the benefits versus the additional cost factors and is the value there with a diesel generator. And then I'm going to do something. You know, yesterday I did a show on the future of TSP. And I said, you know, sometimes I get worn out. Sometimes I get tired. Because of that, my last... Variety show, I missed one. I missed a bullet. It was in there, right in my outline. I went right over, right past it. And sometimes when you get tired, you make little mistakes like that. I had a question on YouTube How do I find subprimals for cutting up my own steaks and roasts, etc.? This guy said he went to his local Costco. He asked for a chuck roll, and the dude looked at him like he was, you know, sitting there with a lizard growing out of his ear or something, like he had no idea what he was talking about. And I said I would talk about that in the last kind of multi part show and I didn't. It was a mistake. I'm sorry I missed it. Um, I think it was what happened was I had a bunch of screens pulled up for StreamYard for the live stream and on my other machine I had the outline and I just went to the next screen and that's and never came back to it. So I'll talk about that in my segment today and I'll talk about saving some gasoline. Saving some butt time on the road Doing this the easy way and making sure that the place you're going has the thing you're looking for before you go there to get it, and if not, at least finding the guy you need to talk to to find that out. This I'm actually going to channel a little bit of when I used to be in sales, like corporate sales. There was a, there was a concept I used to teach my salespeople back then. Never accept a no from, from somebody who does not have the authority to say yes. If you're talking to somebody and they're like, I'd like to help you, but I can't. And it's a little different than that. But in sales, you do this. Like, okay, well, then who do you work for? Well, I can't put you... Can you give me a name? I'll I'll do this on my own, man. Like, just who do I need to talk to? So, like, if you talk to some guy that's, like, low-level dude stocking the meat case and it's a bigger store and he's not, like, the meat manager... Can I talk to the meat manager? Like, that's who you want to talk to. And we'll talk about how you can determine if a place has what you're looking for before you get in the car and drive all the way there. If you're going to be there anywhere, anyway, you can do, like, a cold call, right? Like, But we'll just talk about this because... Since I've done that show, a lot of you are starting to do this. And I am hearing from some people, I'm having trouble finding certain things. And so we'll talk about that as well today. With that, let's drive headlong into it with the Ron Paul Liberty highlights of the week leading off Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams. And then clean up a batter today, Chris Rossini.
0: Here's someone we know and like very much. A good American patriot in my view. Senator Rand Paul, here he is, and he came out with a tweet today that sounds pretty good. He said, today I'm putting congressional leadership and the president on notice that I will oppose any effort to hold the federal government hostage for Ukraine funding. I will not consent to expedited passage of any spending measure that provides any more U.S. aid to Ukraine. And, you know, us coming from the House side, we'd say, well, what are you going to do about that? But as you
2: know, it's a little different in the Senate. Yeah, and, and, and the, the important word here that he used, he didn't say, I'm going to stop it forever. Yeah. Expediting it, yeah, because yeah. they can move things very quickly. They can do it within hours. You know, after 9-11, they were doing things very, very quickly.
0: The other side, the neocon side who wants to fund this, they are relying on having the sense of urgency. Don't stop. Don't think. Just pass the money. We have to do it immediately. So I think Senator Paul pushing the pause button for as long as he can, is going to allow people to catch their breath, you know, just thinking about, is this a smart idea? You know, the the argument has always been we have to fund their democracy and their liberty and help them protect themselves. But more and more that's coming out, in fact, I just saw a couple of days ago, another opposition party leader was arrested in Ukraine. So that's how you win an election. I mean, I guess Biden is learning from Zelensky. Just arrest the opposition, and then you you have a good chance at the election.
2: Because remember... Uh, over these last several years, how we tried to explain why lockdowns were very bad, especially the people who wrote the laws never followed the laws, followed the rules anyway. Yeah, and it was the hypocrisy that really aggravated the average voter, whether they are Republican or Democrat. People, you know, regardless of political parties, seem to universally despise the hypocrites, which means they don't like to be lied to, is yeah. what they're saying.
3: The covid authoritarians are trying to rewrite history, hoping that, uh, you know, Americans have the uh, the memory of a goldfish, I guess. Uh, So the fact that they're even trying this instead of hiding in shame says something about them, too. But, yeah, claiming, oh, no, we didn't know we would do things differently is nonsense we could we could take hours and hours and just pull up quotes from everybody from Fauci from Folesky from uh Lena Wend I mean think of all the people Bill Gates we could just sit here for hours and bring up quotes but I'll just take one and that's from the president when he was on national television on uh you know a CNN town hall in 2021 he says you're not going to get covid if you have these vaccinations Now, this is not someone that doesn't know, saying, you know, I don't know if you're going to get COVID, if you get these jabs. He says you're not. okay so they knew what they were saying, obviously. And uh, and their actions spoke even louder than their words. They were censoring all the people that were telling the truth, you know, and they didn't even follow their own rules. They broke all of them with the lockdowns. They were having parties. They would walk around with no masks. They would stand with children with masks on and stand with no masks, taking these pictures. You know, they would walk around with no masks. And then once the camera was on, they'd throw it on real fast. It was political theater and it took a while for everybody to, uh, to catch on, you know, and now they're trying to say, Oh, well, you can't look back now and say, uh, you know, that, that we could have known all this stuff. You can't be a Monday morning. Poor. No, not Monday morning. People knew at that time. You don't just run in front of traffic get squashed by a car and say oh well you can't know after the fact that uh you get you get squashed if you run in front of a car no you know ahead of time don't go in front of the car you're going to get squashed and people were saying the truth and they were censored so to claim oh we didn't know what we were doing is nonsense and nobody should fall for it C- you can't claim ignorance when uh the scale of what they did, placing the, the almost virtually the entire nation under house arrest, deciding which businesses are important and which uh will go out of business. And so many just went out of business by decree, you know, and and throwing cloths on people's faces and, you know, to claim ignorance, closing churches. I mean, even Julius Caesar, I don't think even did that, you know, so to to go to they had such a field day with this that to now claim ignorance, oh, we, we didn't know what we were doing, is preposterous. You know, under no circumstances should any of those things happen. You know, government shouldn't have, and shouldn't and doesn't have the authority to do any of those things. And fortunately, we took an optimistic approach weeks ago. Fortunately, the American people are not biting this time. Even CBS News had to admit. They said, "Yeah, you know, despite a recent rise in COVID cases and variants, as if those matter. A CBS poll found that most Americans aren't concerned about getting COVID. In fact, the nation voices less concern than it ever has since the start of the pandemic. So thank goodness the American people seem to be wising up at, at large and uh they have to keep it up because they're gonna keep trying. You know, they're they're they're
1: not just trying to pretend certain things didn't happen. In many ways, they're trying to restart doing the things that didn't work, and we now do have hindsight, and they're expecting you to not remember that it didn't work. It's one thing to claim that we didn't force anybody to do anything. We didn't... I mean, literally, Fauci said, we didn't shut down the economy, and I've seen a split video where they show him say this recently twice, and then they show a video of him from a few years ago referring to Trump and saying, so then I told the president we needed to shut down the country side by side. And that's one level of goldfish memory they hope you have. But this concept of, well, we need to go back to masking again. Get your booster shot. This shit hasn't worked at all. But I'm more interested in this idea of the goldfish memory index at any given time What percentage of the American people are displaying goldfish-level memory? There's a thing in investing called the fear and greed index, and they use it to talk about market sentiment. Uh, There's one for Bitcoin, but there's one for investing in general, the fear and greed. How greedy are people being? How aggressive are they investing versus how fearful are they being? And if you're smart, you buy when the fear is high. And you you sell when the greed is high, right? That's a Warren Buffett philosophy there. Well, what is the goldfish index of the American people on any given issue or set of issues at any given time? I think it'd be cool to have, like, a meter with, like, a big goldfish on it that looks stupid, you know? And, like, he's got the fin, actually becomes, like, the something like that. Come on, one of you guys out there that's a coder or graphic artist and shit, like... Build the goldfish index, and let's figure out how to tie it to like news reports or something. I think it would be cool. Anyway, moving on. Let's talk about something more practical for the average person who wants to build a brand. Right? Let's say that you want to, you want to build a brand, and one of the ways you want to do that is through public speaking. I think this is a fantastic way to build a brand. I think building an ability to publicly speak is a great thing to do. I think it's a fantastic idea. When this question came in, I literally thought about taking it myself. I built a lot of what I have on public speaking. I'm not even talking about TSP. I'm going way back. All the way to the late 90s, I was public speaking. I was doing uh, addresses at, like, keynote speaking at uh, conventions and stuff like that. Um, But I really thought about it and thought, you know, this is a good expert panel, panel question. Let's send this to Nicole Awesome Sauce and see what she can do with it. So, Nicole, what do you say?
4: Howdy TSP, Nicole Sauce here with the Living Free in Tennessee Podcast and the Self Reliance Festival with a question from Matthew from Agorist Tax Advice about how to get more speaking gigs. Matthew wants to know how do I get more speaking gigs? It has really been great for my business to speak in front of people, and I've always spoken at events where I have personal connections with the organizers, so how do I branch out? And I took a little while to think about this because most of my career has revolved around doing speaking engagements and facilitations and they just sort of happened. But then I was like, you know, they didn't just sort of happen. I put work in on that. So here's a couple of ideas I have. And first and foremost, if you want to be hired to do speaking engagements the you need to work on your ability to be a good speaker and a great way to do that is to have a social presence on you a uh, presence, presence presence on youtube and other places that showcases your expertise and your ability to speak well and that means every time you speak somewhere that they record it see if you can get that recording put it out on the youtube channel Talk about it, put little segments out as shorts. I see a lot of people doing really great work in this way, and that's a good way for additional customers to, to stumble across you anyway. When you go to apply for a speaking engagement with a stranger and you have a YouTube channel with a decent following and some proof that you're a good presenter, that really helps. In fact, yesterday I saw Dr. Barry post a picture of himself speaking on a spa- stage in another country, like Turkey or somewhere. I don't remember where. And it's just a nice picture. of I him, and he's like, this was a great time talking about these things. So that helps establish your credibility with event organizers. And if you are easy to work with, and and which I know you are because I've worked with you, uh, then I think it just sort of comes together. So that's just sort of one, like get that going in the background, consistently built over time. Some other things that have really helped me in my career as a public speaker is, one, I run events. So I've run many, many events on many different topics that – have grown over time, including the Self-Reliance Festival, which is going to have more than 500 attendees next time. Well, I get to speak there. Those 500 people see me. We record it and produce it and put it out. We use those videos online, and then people are like, hey, I want to have her come talk about underground networking or the 15-minute homestead or how to how to get and keep a redneck, which we're going to talk about at this one. It's going to be kind of a funny one. So that really helps, right? Because you can, you can hire yourself to speak. And I know a lot of people who are building personal coaching businesses, host events at hotels in different places that are smaller, but then they're speaking and then they have the recordings. Attend the conferences where you want to speak and observe what it took for, for the people who are speaking to get there. And you can even sit down with those people and talk to them and say, hey, did they invite you? Did you apply? Like, how did that work? That's a really good way to do it. Plus, when you attend conferences, people get to know you. You establish credibility and a personal connection. Apply for speaking gigs wherever you want to go. Most conferences have application processes. And I, with, like with my business, I have applied at multiple, multiple events over the years. And sometimes I say yes, and sometimes I never get an answer, and that's okay. I just keep doing it because over time they learn who I am. Have a book to promote or something else, especially in your business. I would have I would think about writing at least an ebook and have it out there. So when they see you, they're like, oh, it's this Matthew guy. He does this. This is his presence online. This is the book he's selling. Maybe I'll read that book. Send that book to people as part of your promotion kit. If you're targeting specific conferences, sponsor events. If you sponsor events, oftentimes events are like you have to sponsor to speak. This, this happens at Freedom Fest, right? If you want to speak, you have to sponsor the event for about, I think, ten or $20,000. Last time I, I was asked to sponsor the event. Other, otherwise, you're not getting up there unless you are like top name, top name, top name. So, and even then, they ask them to sponsor. So there's a lot of events like that. You'd be surprised. Check that out. And then never underestimate the power of connections you already have. In 2020 when Mother Earth News went from in-person conferences to video only for the year because of all the things that happened in 2020, one of the people I knew introduced me to the organizers as a possibility of somebody who could send a video in and do a digital presentation because they did their conferences digitally. I didn't know that person was associated with Mother Earth News, and at the time, I was really hoping to get a foothold in as sort of their, their speaking, on their speaking uh, rotation. I actually changed my mind after the way I saw the relationship with them go down with Joel Salatin. But that hadn't happened yet at that point. So I did the video, and and that was just because somebody introduced me. So what I've discovered is if I'm targeting a specific conference I want to speak at, I ask my network, does anybody know the organizers a prepper camp, for example. Do you know the organizers of prepper camp? Can you introduce them to me? Now you have an introduction with some credibility and a recommendation, and I know that you're a good speaker. So, like, if you asked me if I knew people, I would probably happily introduce you. Not probably, I would happily introduce you to the people I know. So use that network and use the network of your network and use your network's network network, and then just deliver a great presentation every time. And you'll be surprised how fast it comes together. I hope these ideas help you. I am by no means an expert on booking speaking engagements. But I have booked myself at many speaking engagements over the last 25 years. And it's been really instrumental in growing Holler Roast Coffee, Self-Reliance Festival, Living Free in Tennessee, and NicoleSauce.com. It's been very instrumental in all of the success of those things because people see me. And they see my personality, they trust me, and then they're more likely to buy coffee or a ticket to Self-Reliance Festival. Speaking of Self-Reliance Festival, it's October 14th and 15th. We've got the best lineup we've ever had this time. It gets better every event. We've got Jack Spearco coming out to speak about artificial intelligence. We've got Joel Salatin coming to speak about more about freedom than homesteading. That's, That's a fun one for him. And then right after the event on Monday, the 16th, he's going to kick off a chicken processing workshop. So why not learn to process chickens from the best, which will also convert into a hands-on chicken processing workshop. We've got Joel Riles coming with his dogs, but he's also going to talk about how to develop your niche business. We've got Pat Watson from Uncensored Tactical coming to talk about how to pick locks and how to make a lock picking business into something that's very profitable for you. So that's pretty cool. We've got Louise Milliman coming to talk about off-grid living and how she built her off-grid homestead. That's just a, a, just a taste. Like you can learn sewing, knitting, spinning. you can learn trapping. you can learn mapping. You can learn all sorts of things at the Self-reliance Festival. Tickets are only 95 bucks. SelfRelianceFestival.com. and that includes on-site tent camping in case you don't want to grab an Airbnb nearby. Check it out guys and make it a great week.
1: So let me just reiterate where Nicole started with the idea of having examples of your speaking, and let me take it up a notch. If you're applying for a job right now, your resume and your cover letter should be built to the job. It shouldn't be generic. Generic is fine for just broadcasting out or whatever, but you should build it to the job. You should mention something. Like if I'm hiring and I'm running a company, and let's say back when I was uh, one of the companies that we owned uh, through the holding corp uh, at, it was Syrian back when I worked with Neil. And we were in the uh, wireless network optimization business like you know, if, if I got a cover letter and it said something about our existing relationship with AT&T, and, and, and I this is all information you could have gotten, by the way, from our website, press releases and all, and how we had been working with them and how much money we would saved them, and you had a contact with T-Mobile, and you put that in your cover letter, I was paying attention to it and handing it off, okay? If it was just like I read it, and this could have come from any random-ass engineer or marketing person, or whatever, I was putting it in the shredder. See? Okay, so if there is a speaking event, without going too tight on the niche, because maybe they want you to do something else, what I would suggest is send them a proposal that is a freaking, like, three sentences about what you would like to speak about, and send them a two-minute segment of you talking about that thing. Turn the camera on, stand in front of a wall. I don't, it doesn't need to, If you have something to use that you can snip out, and then say, "Here's the full presentation." That's great, but this is what I want to see. See, I've anybody that's done these events, we have we have hired a person to speak. We have had them come. They are a subject matter expert. They are very knowledgeable. They know what they're doing. But listening to them speak is like, "Oh my God, the paint is drying too slow." Okay, if I'm bringing you to speak, I will, and I don't know you from Adam. What you need to convince me of right out of the gate is that you are going to be an engaging speaker that people are not going to walk out while you're talking, that people are not going to go to sleep, that people will not be on their phone, and, and not because they're putting down notes from what you said, because they're 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 listening to TikTok videos through a Bluetooth earpiece. Like that's what you need to convince me of. That's the most important thing to me, because I've had authors and I've read their book. I'm like, oh my god, this person's great. And you bring them on as a podcast guest. And they're great. And you have them speak. You're like, oh, my God, you can't speak. Right? So I need to see you speak. I need to know that you know how to speak. I need to know that you're not going to open a PowerPoint deck with 47 slides and a 45-minute speaking engagement. And it's all text. Like, I need to know that you know how to speak. And nothing will tell me that more than one to three minutes of you speaking. Because, and it will, nothing will tell you more that you need to work on it than trying to do that and not being able to do it. So that would be my fine-tuned, short, and then you can provide all that other stuff Nicole was talking about, right? And and putting tons of it out there, that's great, because people see it, I want this person. But if you're going to approach them, you need to approach it, these people are busy, I know I am. Like, I could speak, and this is what I can do, and click, and boom, 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 yes, Yes, I had one person speak here, won't name him, uh, tried to coach him, wouldn't listen, had one slide in his deck, I talked to him after the event, I said if you did made that one slide your whole deck, every person would have walked out of here and wanted to talk to you forever about what you're doing, because you're very good at it, but you made it complicated and clunky, and that one slide with six bullet points on it, you could have done your whole presentation off it. Get good, and then show that you're good, and do it in a way that's quick and and, and hits a person, then they know I can put you in front of a room with 50 people or 500, and 90% of them are going to be engaged and locked in on you, that person will have you speak. Because they're not taking a risk at that point. Remove the concept of risk when you ask a question, and you're likely to get a yes. Moving on, let's hear about Wood Heat from Ben Falk.
5: Hey, Jack and all, Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Um, So I have used a couple of these fans over the years. I've seen them around. I've never seen them um, work for very long. They seem to wear out. Um, I would not recommend getting one. Um, So, um, yeah, I would start with that, you know, classic example of like zooming into potentially the wrong question. You know, I think your your real question, I don't want to assume, but I, I think it's, pretty uh clear to make a case that you're you know what you're really after your goal is to get heat around your home but the way you you phrased your your question is you know how many fans can I get working on a stove so I'd back up and say wait what's your what's your actual goal if it's moving heat around the home how to do that best and if, I, if I've if i assumed incorrectly that really just heating getting heat from the stove to different areas of the house is your goal, which I can't imagine what else it would be, then let's start with that. Um, there's a lot of ways to do that. Fans are only one way. I haven't seen them work very well and I see them break a lot and I've had them break a lot. Um, yes, they do creosote your pipe quickly because they're sucking heat off the pipe. So Creosote forms whenever you have like a quick drop in temperature in the exhaust pipe. That's why it's good to keep that those pipes inside. And also you're getting the heat off of them versus going straight outside Um, and then sucking heat off of the off of the exhaust pipe is a great way to also build up creosote, which is dangerous and houses burn down and people die and lose like everything from that so i wouldn't recommend doing that at all the best place to take heat off a stove and this is this is in my book i mean this isn't new information although unfortunately it's not out there enough is right after the firebox you don't want to suck heat from the firebox at the beginning of the whole cycle of wood burning and you don't want to suck heat off this last part of the cycle which is in the exhaust you want to extract heat in between those, which is after the firebox burns, you want that as hot as possible. That's why the best stoves we now realize are insulated. So you have high firebox temperatures because you need over a th- thousand degrees for the volatile gases to ignite. And at least 50% of the heat in wood is in those gases. So high efficiency burns require that the, wood, that the interior of the firebox is super hot, it means it's insulated, with like scamole or other different materials, and you're not extracting heat from it there. So I no longer put a water jacket on stoves for hot water. We put our pipes to get hot water off the stoves uh, above the firebox in the top of the stove before it goes up the exhaust. For your purposes, since you didn't mention water, although everyone should be heating their hot water, their water with their wood stove if they live in a cool climate, Uh, that's a pretty blanket recommendation because it's the most resilient thing you can do if you have any meaningful amount of wood in that landscape. Um, You're trying to get, I think, although you didn't specify the goals directly, heat around your home. Um, If that's the case, there's a lot of ways to do it. I mean, opening and closing doors in certain arrangements, having air leave the home, your exfiltration be far from the wood heater on a different side of the house and then having air intake come by the wood stove so you can move the heat over. Um, There's computer fans that run on very low loads. If you're on the grid especially, they're easy to do. Or even if you're off the grid, those little CPU cooling fans, they're like a watt or maybe even less. They might even be half a watt. You can put those up in the corner of the threshold and they'll move a lot of air over time. You can do a few of those around the home to really get warm air around. Um, but really, you want to design and your home and have your home constructed around the wood heater from the very beginning. Now, I know that's not possible for a lot of people, but that's, that's how you really want to set these things up. You want to put them pretty central in your home. You know, one the ideally they're on the bottom floor, the first living space floor, not the basement, but let's say in a home with a full basement, they'd be on the first main floor above the basement, and the heat goes up very easily. And the home would not be bigger than about let's say thirty by thirty or so, thirty by forty, depending on how well insulated it is, of course. And you'd want it very well insulated, ideally, and be two floors, and not be very and be squarish not very long and that makes sense from a heat loss prevention perspective anyway in a cold climate is to avoid surface area where possible so those are some some ideas uh are some important concepts to keep in mind um yeah wouldn't recommend the fans i would focus on you know getting heat around in other ways and they do make noise as well i'm just reading your email again um so yeah good luck try to set up your home uh you know in structurally in in a more sensible way if possible um good luck to you bye
1: uh awesome stuff from ben knows way more about wood heat than me so i got nothing to add but i figured since we're hearing from one of the great permaculture teachers out there let's hear from two of them in a row jeff lawton was nice enough to record this while in jordan on site I mentioned before, sometimes it'll be like machinery running in the background. Not that much. There's a little background noise in it, but that's why, because he's that committed. And this question's about using chickens to compost, but wanting to include large animal manure in your composting. But thinking, like, can I just not do that? Or do I need to go far away to get animal manure? Because the animal manure that I can get close to me has chemicals and pass-through and stuff like that. I think people worry about this way too much, and as much as I love Paul Wheaton, I'm going to blame him for a lot of that. I think there's an awful lot of people that have poor results in their garden, and they're quick to latch onto any excuse as to why. I do think things like mulching with like straw that was sprayed with grazon can cause long-term lasting problems, but when it comes to stuff like this, I tend to agree with Jeff. Jeff, what do you say about this?
2: Hi, Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from Jordan in the Middle East, some in the Dead Sea Valley, 400 meters below sea level and the lowest place on Earth. Right, we have a question about chickens, chicken tractors, well really mostly about chicken compost, where we talk about using large animal manure. Now, you don't have to have large animal manure if you have enough chicken manure. In fact, you can drop the quantity of chicken manure to 25% of the, of the components of a mound But that means you've got to up the carbon and up the green material to make the volume. You have to have a cubic meter, which is, let's call it one and a quarter cubic yards if you're talking in the non-metric system. But our question comes from someone who's surrounded by industrial agriculture, where they're concerned about using the manure from large animals in industrial farms and you'd have to drive 15 to 20 miles to get some manure that's not so affected by chemicals or more of a organic manure. Now, the thing is, I believe you don't really have to worry about that. The amount of toxins in the manure of a cow or a horse or large animal is insignificant. It's not a very large volume of the manure. Now, I know, most of you are going, oh, but there's some. Listen, the thing is that the decomposition cycles are linked to the carbon molecule. Life is based in carbon. We're based in carbon. That's what makes the life in the world go round. Now, the carbon in the decomposition cycle becomes adhesive and any complex molecules that are in the process, like herbicide, pesticide, fungicide, etc., they attached to the comp, to the carbon cycle and become long chain molecules, and then they become inert. The chemicals that are in the it's not a large amount, but the little bit of residual chemical in the manures. Remember, those animals are alive when they're dropping that manure, so it, it's not that much that it would kill them. Probably they do have some health issues, probably, but anyway, let's not get in there. The thing is that the minor amount of toxins get locked up in the decomposition cycle because they attach to the carbon molecule and the carbon molecule is very good at this that's how all toxins are locked up, that's how biological cleaning works, that's how ecosystems work, that's how Chernobyl and Fukushima and all these places and if you go back a little bit further, Hiroshima and Nagasaki right from the second world war and the dropping of atomic bombs all of that got locked up over time by life and death, 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 life and death. death. Now, there's no more life and death stimulated than compost, because compost is all about stimulating fast tracking the life and death of microorganisms while they're processing organic matter. So over a period of a minimum of 18, but quite a few more days or months or decomposition in general, all of this stuff gets locked up. That's what ecosystems are really good at. The, the largest amount of soil creation in nature is in shallow lakes and ponds, but even more so in shallow marine systems, which are your salt, mar- salt water marshes and, and your wetlands close to the ocean. They're, they're filters, and you have enormous amounts of life close to the ocean in the mouths of rivers and estuaries. In fact, the, the most diverse and life-rich ecosystems on planet Earth are the tropical river mouths, which are the mangrove systems. They're the richest ecosystems on Earth. They're locking up any toxins before they go into the ocean and converting it to soil. Well, of course, it's salt water soil, but let's not get into that, it's still soil. So I want you to see, I want people to see, look, this is where you, these are the lessons of nature. These are major, major, large lessons of nature. we can lock up all these toxins Um, but, but we can only do it in a sensible way by stimulating life systems and maximizing the life and death cycles now that's literally what you do when you turn compost you kill billions, gazillions of organisms and their bodies become feed for the next wave of microorganisms so you're stimulating huge in numbers huge in numbers Right, Life and death cycles. Life is based in carbon. There's your carbon molecule. It's locking things up. Now, you can put it to the test if you like. You can even take the compost to a laboratory and get it tested if you really want to go down that rabbit hole. If you do enough research on the internet, you'll find people that have actually done this. They've, they've put highly toxic chemicals in small amounts into compost ingredients then taken the ingredients through a compost cycle tested it at the end and they can't find it because it's it's still there but it's in a different assembly it's gone back to a complex molecule a, what we call a long chain molecule so that's the ultimate way to do it that's how nature does it we've made those com- we've made those nasty chemicals we've taken you know pesticide, fungicide, herbicide. Where did they come from? They didn't come from outer space. They weren't delivered by aliens. They were, they were made by strange assemblies in laboratories, human assemblies made by people in all their wisdom. We decided to grow our food on poisons. What a smart move that was, right? <laughs> ha ha, right? But what, what nature does, it allows us to use this quite simple process that has a very complex set of life events that takes those foolishly constructed co- molecules, those foolishly destructed uh, created chemicals, man made, and turn them back into complex long chain molecules that fit back into nature and don't cause any problems. That's my advice. Get into it. Get it done. We need the garden. We need better food. We need everybody to understand this. Sir, on your clay with your one surviving apple tree, you are setting a glorious example of how nature works with us. Enjoy the partnership. Enjoy the journey. If you're not having fun, you've got the design wrong. Get into it. All good. See ya even further, because he's talking about pass-through
1: manure. They did bring a bunch of other stuff in it, like nuclear bombs and nuclear meltdowns and stuff like that. Um, And they're talking things with extremely long half-lives. But the other thing people are terrified of is treated straw and things like that. I used to be really religious about this. I would get straw and soak it in a bucket, and I would grow beans in two pots, and then I would water one with the water from the bucket and the other with water from my well and if one did really poorly and it was the one with the straw water oh it's got glyphosate or something I don't even care anymore I put my straw in the chicken coop chicken's crap on it chop it all up I make one big batch of compost a year I've never had a problem and it is, it is because of Jeff that I let go of all these concerns, the composting process, this microbial process, the fungal lockup. Now, if it's something I'm going to mulch with because it's an immediate issue and it doesn't go through the cycle, that I concern myself with. When it comes to composting, I do not even care. Carbon is magic. Carbon is magic. For all the people shrieking about global warming, get on the carbon train and start using carbon the way it's designed to be used. And you can stop shrieking about carbon. Anyway, with that, let's move on. Next up, I have a response by C.J. Kilmer about the fourth turning. And I've had more questions and more comments about this and probably any other subject that we haven't talked about a lot on the show. I reference it from time to time. So when this came in, I thought it was great to send over to C.J. and let him talk about his thoughts on this cyclical concept by four generations and specifically relating to United States history.
6: Howdy, this is CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast, and I'm responding to a question from Joey. And Joey asks if I'm familiar with the book The Fourth Turning and or Strauss Howe Generational Theory, and if so, what my take is. So, yes, I have read the book The Fourth Turning, and yes, I'm familiar with Strauss and Howe's generational theory about American history. So for those unfamiliar, the quick version is that these authors, Strauss and Howe, came up with this theory to try and have a cyclical view of American history, and they argue that you should think in terms of generations of people, and they define a generation as roughly like an 18 to 20 year span of birth years. And they claim that generations come in sort of four archetypes that repeat themselves in the same order roughly every 80 years or so, because each generation is roughly 20 years. So according to them, the four generational archetypes that keep repeating themselves in American history are hero, artist, prophet, and nomad. And they also argue that American history itself goes through Four phases as these generations kind of rotate through different stages of life, you know, childhood, young adulthood, middle age, elderhood, etc. And so the four phases that keep repeating themselves are number one, a high, which is sort of like the seeming golden age that follows in the aftermath of a crisis having passed. So that's the first turning of this roughly 80 year cycle of generations. The second turning is an awakening. Which is where there's some sort of a spiritual awakening usually accompanied by social reform movements and things like that. The third turning is an unraveling where society starts to fray apart into factions and institutions start to get weaker and break down and lose their legitimacy. Then there is the crisis phase or fourth turning. And once that is resolved, then you go back into a new high and start the cycle over again. And just to use the most recent cycle to illustrate, so Strauss and Howe would say we're in a fourth turning right now, and that's why there seem to be, you know, so many crises and emergencies and things happening. And they would argue that the last fourth turning or crisis period was the Great Depression in World War II. Then they would argue that the high that followed that crisis was from roughly like 1946 to 64, something like that. And that was, again, your high when institutions were strong, social cohesion was high, and, you know, things seemed to be, at least on the surface, pretty good for most people. Then they would say that the awakening is basically like the 60s into the 70s, something from roughly like 1963 to 1980 or so. So this is when You know, you have kind of the hippie stuff, the psychedelic stuff, the new age stuff, various social movements, civil rights, anti-Vietnam War, new wave feminism, etc. Then I think they would say that the unraveling phase went from roughly the early 80s until the turn of the century. I forget their exact, you know, how they would date this. And then that we are currently in the midst of a fourth turning or crisis phase. Now, what's my overall take? Well, I definitely think there's something to it. I don't think that their theory is completely, you know, disconnected from reality. I think there's something to it. Aspects of it certainly make sense. In general, I think it's useful to add generations to the lens through which you analyze history and human events and things. So, you know, you can look at history through a wide range of lenses, and each lens reveals certain things, but then also might cause you to miss others. And I've compared it to, uh, if any of you listening have ever seen the original Predator film, which is one of the best action movies of all time. And, um, you know, all the sequels are terrible except for two, which is pretty good but not great. But anyway, there's a scene in the original Predator film where the Predator is switching his visor controls through different views and you know he's looking at thermal he's looking at infrared he's looking at you know whatever else and each of these different settings of his visor reveals different things but also then loses others and to me that's what it's like when you're looking at history through various analytical lenses so you can analyze history through the lens of socioeconomic class you can do it through the lens of race you can do it through the lens of gender and you know a whole bunch of others but I think that adding generations to that is helpful as well, because I'm sure many of you listening have encountered a situation where you just will seem to click and understand each other better when you're interacting with someone of the same generation as you versus if you're interacting with someone of a very different generation. You just seem to understand each other more instinctively and easier, even if you're from very different backgrounds in other regards, you know, race, social class, whatever. I also think there are certain specific aspects of their theory that make sense. For example, they argue that the reason that really big wars only happen roughly every 80 years or so is because you need time for the generation that fought the last big war to essentially die off and be gone from the scene and to no longer be exercising a restraining influence on politics and foreign policy. So, for example, the last big crisis before World War II, was the Civil War. And if you look at the timing of things, when did World War II occur? Well, it happened to occur right as the Civil War veterans were, you know, the last of them were dying off and exiting the scene. And so you no longer had the generation that had fought the Civil War around to sort of restrain the government from getting into any really big wars. And if you look around today, I think you can see that The G.I. generation, the generation that were the foot soldiers of World War II, they're essentially all gone, except for, you know, a handful of people who are living uh, beyond a century. And so you no longer have those people who fought World War II firsthand to kind of be that restraining influence on the boomers and younger generations than them being kind of trigger-happy, being kind of flippant about, for example, potentially getting into a war against Russia or China or both. So I think that there's definitely something to their overall idea of generations having these identities and there being certain patterns you can kind of pick up. However, I do have some criticisms, among other things. I think that people, including Strauss and Howe themselves, will often take their model too literally, dogmatically, fundamentalistically, whatever, and essentially make the error known as the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, also summed up by the phrase, the map is not the territory, where they start to take their model of reality too literally as if it's reality itself, which it is not. There are other criticisms I have of the theory, including that it's overall just too deterministic, and that sort of dovetails with my previous criticism. In some ways, even though the content of it is very different, it reminds me of Marxism in that it has certain things that it is pointing out correctly. It has certain important truths that it is revealing that might have been overlooked by other analytical systems, but it's too dogmatically deterministic and kind of arrogantly overconfident in its own ability to accurately predict down to the detail what's going to happen in the future. And I have some other criticisms as well. I've mentioned Strauss Howe Generational Theory in various episodes of my podcast, the Dangerous History Podcast. I went into the theory in a lot of detail way back in 2017 in my episode 140, which was called Thoughts on Cyclical History and Generations, which I made not long after the first time I read the book The Fourth Turning. And I also hit upon Strauss how Generational Theory a bit in an episode I did in 2021 called Grey Champions. It was my episode 219. And I'll go ahead, when I send this audio segment into Jack, I'll go ahead and include links to those old episodes of my show in case he wants to include them in the show notes. But yeah, it's going to be DHP episodes 140 and 2.19, where I get into strauss Hau theory quite a bit more than I did here. And just in general, I would urge people who are interested in non-establishment takes on history to check out my show and not just to listen to the most recent episode, but go back through my back catalog because I've been doing the Dangerous History podcast now for over nine years. And a lot of the stuff I've done is pretty evergreen. And so I would urge people who find my content interesting to go back through the back catalog, go back to the stuff I did five, six, seven, eight years ago. I've covered a lot of stuff over the nine plus years I've been doing this show. Thank you.
1: So I'll throw some criticism in here, too, and understand this is not of uh, CJ, because CJ, when he was talking about wars, there was kind of following... The outline in the thesis of the book of, you know, World War II being the big crisis that the the Civil War generation wasn't there for. Um, anybody go, what, what, what about the Great War, World War One? Now, the U.S. involvement in World War One, I, I believe, was oversold in its value to the war. And we were in there toward the end of it. Um... And it's kind of like there was a bar fight and when everybody's ass was totally kicked and our side was winning, we walked in and threw a few knockout punches. Well, World War II, when the U.S. got into World War II, I don't think World War II could have ended the way it did without the U.S. being involved 100% of the way. So, okay, you could make that case, but again, it was... And the United States was a very much of an isolationist mindset, and was sold into World War One with the sinking of the Lusitania, et cetera, and it was a big deal. And then between World War Two and the potential for global conflict now, and this is what proponents of the fourth turning are pointing to, to say, this means there's going to be a hot war with Russia and China. Well, there was Korea, and it was three years, and it wasn't technically a war. Uh, Vietnam and 58,000 Americans died, and they were largely cheered on by the World War II generation, Uh, If you think of movies like Born Born on the 4th of July, there was some artistic license in that, but there was a lot of truth in it. And we had a 20-year war on terror, 20 years in Afghanistan. Now, we weren't fighting a nuclear power or something like that, but here's my point. If you want to make the case about the war thing, you could literally take almost any time in American history and do it because this country's been blowing some shit up for like, 85-90% to of our existence We've been dropping bombs or shooting somebody Um, I think the thesis is interesting I think there's truth in it I much agree with CJ's take on it That there are things to be derived and learned from it But I don't think it's as ironclad as it's made out to be But of course when you want to sell a book You have to pretend that it is I think there's just a reality of generational shift That occurs And generational angst And, you know, the old song, every generation blames the one before. And I think it's actually more accurate to say that most generations tend to blame the generation two before them. So if you look at who the millennials most blame for their plight right now, and and Z as well, it's the boomers. Gen X is like, we're not even here. In fact, we just get lumped in with the boomers. Boomers. So I don't know. I, I've always, I've never read the book, to be fair. I've been told too many times. And I just have this feeling that I have better things to do with my time. I'm sorry. I do. Anyway, I very much agree with CJ's take on this. And he did a better job than I ever could have. Let's go on and hear from Tim tool. Toolman Tim, Tim, Man Tool, Tool, Man Tim, about the uh, concept of diesel generators.
7: Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another question to answer for you for the expert council. So let's dive right in. This week's comes from an update on a video I did uh, quite a while ago. It must be over two years ago now. I got asked a question regarding, is a diesel generator better than a gasoline generator? What are the benefits? What are the drawbacks? And I put together a pretty extensive list back then, but I've had quite a bit of feedback from some people regarding some of the other benefits of it. So if you're out there thinking, man, I'd like to get a diesel generator, well, you might just be thinking, right. Now, they can be a little more difficult to come by, but there are some good ones on the market. But So let's talk about... The benefits of diesel over all your other traditional types of fuel to start with and then we'll talk about the four things that uh, might dissuade you from picking one so first off um, diesel is just less flammable so if you are like me and you need to store all of your fuel inside of a garage you might be more apt to want to keep diesel in there than you would gasoline now to be honest it hasn't stopped me you know, the safety factor for a lot of people could be uh, pretty good. Number two, diesel generators require significantly less maintenance. We're going to talk a lot more about that as we go along, but overall there's less moving parts, less wearing parts, and parts that just take way longer to replace. I mean something as simple as spark plugs versus glow plugs. Glow plugs last infinitely longer than spark plugs for the most part. Number three, Much longer fuel storage life. So if you are a set it and forget it kind of person, then get diesel. Because if you're the type of person that's like, you know, I meant to go out there and uh, treat my gasoline with stable or PRI-G and you forget for months or years on end, then you're better off looking at a diesel. Much better fuel economy. So here's the thing. All things being equal, the same square footage of diesel is going to give you much better fuel economy than the same square footage or, you know, volume of gasoline. Longer lifespan. The generators in general, beyond less maintenance, also last longer and don't wear out nearly as quick. I mean, look at some of the diesel trucks on the market and how long they last, right? Diesel engines are generally made, this is number six, to run longer, but under constant load much more effectively as well. So, Beyond the fact that they're made to run longer, they last longer, they're also made to run longer under load, which means they're just tougher all around. Now, here's one that a lot of people don't think about and I love. During, before, during, and after major weather events, power outages, that sort of thing, quite often, the last thing or the only thing available is diesel. When you pull up, especially if you go to like card locks where they have separate diesel tanks, you can be in great shape. You pull up and you see a lineup of 40 to 50 people parked at the gas tanks waiting to pick up five gallons worth of gas to take home for their generator and you forgot to get diesel or you're like, I'd just like to get a little extra, pull up to the diesel pumps and fill up because almost everybody's buying gasoline and very few people are buying diesel. Number eight. Diesel generators, now, this isn't all of them, but in general, they run at about half the RPMs under load, so they tend to be quieter. If you put a diesel and a gasoline side-by-side running the same load, all things equal, diesels tend to be a little bit quieter because they're running at less RPMs. Now, another thing, quite often you can pick up surplus diesel generators at army surplus stores or auctions and that sort of thing which means you can afford a much bigger generator for the price. (laughs) I guess it depends on how big of a generator your wife's willing for you to bring home, but it's nothing saying that you couldn't bring home a generator the size of a storage container. But, you know, I digress. (laughs) And then probably the coolest thing about a lot of diesel engines in general is all of the alternative fuel options. Number one, now again, uh, where I grew up in Nova Scotia on the East Coast... Diesel and furnace oil were basically the same thing, other than a government-added dye, because furnace oil didn't have taxes on it. So, you know what I'm saying there. You could run furnace oil in a diesel engine, no problem at all. Um, If you filter automatic transmission fluid, some diesel engines will take that. Some will even take filtered used motor oil, depending on how old they are, and used deep fryer oil if treated properly and had the right additives added to it. So you get a lot more flexibility with some of the diesel engines. Uh, Some of the brands out there right now that are making good, decent diesel engines, Generac has one, Durostar has one, Gillette and Pulsar. Those are the ones. Now, diesel, what are the drawbacks? Because it's not all sunshine and roses. Diesel itself is more per gallon. Never used to be that way when I was a kid until the government mandated sulfur being taken out of diesel. All of a sudden, diesel becomes more money than gasoline. Generators tend to be heavier for the same amount of wattage. You look at a diesel generator versus a gasoline, and those things are built like a tank. There is way less selection out there, so start your looking long before the threat of a power outage. And, of course, diesel generators themselves tend to be a little bit more money, or a lot more money, depending on where you're buying it, where you're looking. But I think diesel is the fourth fuel that we don't always think about for generators. I think it's something that some people may want to consider. I think especially if you have a vehicle that also runs on diesel, it would be great to have a a combined fuel storage so that you could bug out if need be or bug in and run your generator off it. I love both aspects of that. So anyway, keep the questions coming, guys. Whether about fuel storage, generators, backup power, entrepreneurship, content creation... Poverty Mindset, whatever you want, send them along to Jack. I will answer them for you. And if you want to know what I'm up to, come by the YouTube channel. Check out Workshop. Check out The Workshop Radio Thursday, Friday, Sunday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I'll, I'll put it to you this bluntly.
1: If you were offering to give me for free two generators of the same wattage, let's say 7,500 watt generators, like pick A or B. And A is gas and B is diesel. I will pick the diesel one every time unless it's made by like Joe Spooty generators and the other ones made by like Honda. I mean, like that that's how I'm just all in on the diesel generator. He said it could be a little more or a lot more expensive. I've never found it to be a little more expensive. I've always found it to be a lot more expensive. And so let's take this again. You're gonna give me a good, well-made diesel generator choice A, or two gasoline generators of the same wattage as the one uh, diesel generator. So I got two versus one, and the two are each as powerful as the one diesel generator. I'm gonna take the two gas generators, because two is one and one is none. All right. And in my experience, and if, if I'm wrong and you can show me a much more reasonably priced diesel generator, they're generally about twice as expensive. That's what I've found. And so I, if I'm going to spend that much money on backup power, I'd rather have two generators. Just, just my opinion. And it, so it's, you know, how, and it, then you're going to factor in how often is this thing going to run. If it's a backup generator, I'm definitely going to side with less expensive two gas generators. If it's going to be something that's going to run a lot, I'm going to go with diesel generator. And I worked on them in the Army. All right, I worked on, you know, big diesel generators. Generators, you you moved around on a trailer towed with a Humvee. And I'm, I'm going to come down on that side every time if something's going to run a lot. With that, let's go ahead and uh, move into my segment here. By the way, I worked on a lot of gas generators, too. Uh, and I wasn't supposed to work on either one of them. But I, I, so I do have some relevant experience with that. Let's move on, though, and let's uh, talk about my segment today, which is how to find subprimals. So I did two shows about cutting your own meat to save money, and a lot not all of it, but a lot of it focused on what's called a subprimal. If you missed those, what is a subprimal? A subprimal is a piece of a primal. Uh, and in some cases a primal doesn't get broke down to a subprimal. There's, I think, seven primals on a cow. Uh, two of each, because like one from each side. But like a shoulder primal is like the neck, the shoulder, the lower arm, part of the rib. It's a big piece of cow, okay? Um and so that's not generally going to ship you're not generally going to be able to go to store and buy that if you're working with a full shoulder primal or uh what have you you've probably gone to a place that processes and made some kind of deal Uh, you know I, i i've not ever seen one like that for sale a primal or something i'm sorry a plate you you might find. It's not that big of a hunk, but when we're talking about the front or the back of a cow, you're not going to get a subprimal would be something like a, a, a chuck roll. And a chuck roll off that front shoulder primal is basically the neck and then some of the the shoulder itself, and then there's another part called a chuck or a shoulder clod, and that's kind of the lower piece, the upper arm of that that cow. And so that and something like uh, a, a round, a top round, those are sub primals that come off uh, different primals. And there's a lot of opportunity in those. A, 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 a full top sirloin butt would have the, the cap, which we also know as the picanha or the coulette, and then you've got the, the regular part of the sirloin. And so you can then take those apart Break them down, take the trim, put it aside for grind, render excess fat into tallow, cut steaks. And then the beauty is that you can often get steaks that are difficult, if not impossible, to buy in a store. Out of a chuck roll, for instance, you can get a chuck eye, which you often can find in a store. Uh, but you can also get something called a Denver steak, which is just beautiful. Beautiful piece of meat. And some other things, or Sierra steaks and things like that, out of these sopranos. Some well, somebody that watched one of those two I don't remember which one it was one of those two meat cutting uh, podcasts the video version said in YouTube I went to Costco I asked guy for a chuck I, I asked the guy for one he didn't say what it was and he looked at me like I was crazy like he didn't know what I was talking about and so how do I actually get my hands on this stuff so um, one of the thing is you don't go ask for a sub primal Most of these people won't know what that means. You need to ask for what you want. So you need to know what it's called. And you might want to go online and look it up and see if there's other names by which it's called. So I'm going to go way back in the Jack Spirico time machine. The year is 1996. It has nothing to do with meat, but just to explain um, what this is. So I was running a cabling job. And I had been one part of the company and another part of the company was where this guy came from. And he came up to me, and he asked me if we had any MP5s. To me, that's a gun. I have no idea what the guy is freaking talking about. No idea. Well, what he wanted was a wall box eliminator. So, like, if you're an electrician or you do electric work, you know when you drop a piece of conduit down, run some electrical wire there's a wall box. And then that's where you mount your electrical outlet. You wire your, 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 your electrical outlet. It sits in there. It screws into it. If you're dropping something like data or voice cabling, there's no need for that. So there's a little stamped piece of sheet metal called a wall box illuminator, and the part number for it was an MP5. And basically, you stick it in the same cutout you would make to put a wall box in, two pieces of metal bend around it, and then that way, once you put those jacks on, you can snap them into a faceplate and screw the faceplate to the wall. That's all that it is. Well, he thought I was a dumbass, because here I am running the job, and I don't know what an MP5 is. He's just using words I don't know. We just called it something else. So where you go regionally, people may refer to things. For I mentioned a whole top sirloin, right? Well, they might call that a top butt. But somebody else, they might not call it that. So you might want to find out a few things that it's called. And if you do that, you're going to be a lot more likely to be able to talk to that person because he might call it something different. And another thing you might ask if you're already there... When, when your meat comes in, how does it come in? Ask them. What do you get? When, when you're putting this stuff out, does it come in pre-cut? Are you cutting it? What are you cutting it from? Things like that. Like these chuck roasts, where are you getting them from? And then you might find their language. Because that's another, this is a sales thing. You want to use the language of your prospect. You're not really selling here, you're buying, but you're selling the idea of doing something that most people in that store never do. I want to buy this thing before you mess with it. I want to pay less for it. So that's my first piece of advice, and that's if you're already there. The other thing I would say is call the location. Ask to speak to the meat manager. If they're busy, say, can you tell me the time where it's easiest to have a, a five-minute phone call with your meat manager? I'm not selling nothing, by the way. I'm looking to buy some stuff. i got a big party going on. I want to buy a bunch of meat. Tell them that. Because the person you're talking to on the phone is, is, is a minimum wage or twice minimum wage person or something like that. They does not really give two shits. But they might think you're trying to sell them something and just want to get you off the phone. See, I want to buy a bunch of meat for a party. Get the meat manager on the phone and explain what you're looking for. And say, I'm looking to buy some large, uncut subprimals. That guy should know what that means. If he doesn't, you're probably talking to the wrong store. And can I get something like a shoulder clod or a whole top butt? Do you have, do you have anything like that? What do you have? Do you have some completely untrimmed eye of rounds or something that I can buy for less than buying it cut? And see what he says. And this way you're not sitting in your car burning gasoline while you're trying to save money. Because this is what happens. Joe gets in his car, drives to four different stores, and if he finally finds what he's looking for, now he can go back there, now he knows who to deal with, but maybe he didn't even get what he really wants. My other suggestion, now this didn't work for the guy because I gave him an answer in the comments. But if you live in a major city, Dallas, Atlanta, San Francisco, etc., or near one, one of the few big advantages is the resources you have. And one of the best places for stuff like this is a Costco business center. This is not your average Costco, but your average Costco card will get you in the door. You don't need a special thing to do it. They sell a lot to restaurants, resale businesses, and stuff like that. If you go to the, if you look for Costco Business Center, you'll find a website for them, and you can look up product on it, but it won't give you any pricing. It'll give you pricing because the pricing it's going to give you is the price of it delivered to you in their delivery area. If you put your zip code in there, there's a good chance it won't work. They'll say, we're sorry, we don't deliver to your area. Well, dumbass, I don't care. I want to come to the store and buy it. You will actually tend to pay a lower price in the store than the delivered price. Sometimes it's the same, sometimes it's lower. But it will give you an idea of what they have. And so what you do is look up the address of that business center, put, the, put their zip code in since you're going to go there. And then you can literally look at what they have. You can just put in beef, sort by price to lowest price, select grocery, and you'll see everything. that. And let me tell you something. They have things that aren't on that site. When you go there, but it will give you a good idea of what they do have and a good idea of the price. And like I said in that one of those shows, you can get things like chicken uh, leg quarters. And one of the secrets to Costco business centers is they sell halal uh, chicken. I think they do some some sub primals that are halal beef, and they definitely have halal lamb. What is that? That's kind of like the Muslim version of kosher. It's not, somebody's gonna get really pissed about that. I didn't say they were the same. Okay? But it's kind of for the same reasons. And I, I'm gonna tell you right now that if you if you get your hands on bulk chicken that is halal versus conventional, the smell alone will tell you it's better taken care of. And I'm not going to get into why. So that would be another thing you can look at while you're looking there. But you can also just look at you know, your regular stuff, your eye of round, your beef clawed, uh, shoulder clawed, your uh, chuck roll. All that stuff's available at Costco Business Centers. You'll also find that Sam's Warehouse, the Sam's Clubs, will often have these things as well. And you can go to the Sam's website and look it up. And you can see. So you know at least they will have those things at your location. Uh, but the phone is your friend. And you younger guys out there they are really trying to save some money, because I know it's hard when you're younger. I know that the least used part of your phone is the part where you actually dial a number and talk to somebody. I understand that. And I get it, because even though I was a salesperson and I made a living doing it, making phone calls to get in the door, I hated that. And I hate talking to, like if i have phone conversations with you if you're in my audience and you and i talk on the phone more than a couple times a year you are in a small ass list i don't talk to people i love if i don't have to to get something done i send a text when it comes to something like this This is just information you are going to get so much faster. Again, the phone call in. I'd like to talk to your meat manager. Can I do that? If the person asks you why, I'm I'm doing a great big event, and I need to buy some really big pieces of meat, and I want to see what you guys have. They'll put you straight through because they know you're not trying to sell a, a, a football with a logo on it to them or some shit like that. They know that you're actually there as a customer Which you're fibbing a little bit, but it doesn't matter. You're lying, but you're telling the truth at the same time. You're a punk! Edition. Anyway, that's just my thoughts on that. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Let me remind you if you like remind you. Let me remind you if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help, always support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. As I'm trying to work a little less right now, I actually worked through on Thursday and did the show yesterday. I do not have an item of the day for you today, but you can always help us out and find all the products I recommend at tSPaz.com. Uh, or just start your shopping there Whenever you can buy anything online And consider becoming a member of the MSB today um, I've worked really hard To make the MSB an incredible value It's 50 bucks a year If you look at it, it's paying for the show It's $0.18 cents an episode Was today worth $0.18? Consider being a member Then use your membership and get your money back I put an order in this week For some cannabis product from Acura Botanicals I saved $55 dollars on one order I'm serious guys. It pays for itself in spades. I've heard from people say, I make a grand a year ROI by being a member. It is that good of a product and it helps make sure that this show will be here for another 15 years. With that, have a fantastic and productive weekend. I will see you Monday with another episode.
0: Are they gonna bail you out? Or just run you around They said you should have a house.